Oh, and we are live with our 60th episode of Absolute AppSec. We jettisoned Ken once again for this week. <laughs> I'm your host today, at, uh, Seth Law, at Seth Law on Twitter. Um, at CK Tricky is off. I, I don't know what. He had some excuse, and I, I don't know what it is. So uh, in his place, I have asked Stefan Edwards at Logic Hill on Twitter to join us once again. Um, and he's going to turn me into a nihilist about something else because, <laughs> you know, I just gave up on security unit testing and testing in general after we got done with our last conversation. Um, before we get into it, uh, there was, I, I think the only announcement is that the next couple of weeks, I think we're going to, we may have a couple of streamed episodes coming from AppSec Global uh, in Tel Aviv. Uh, Ken and I will be teaching our secure code review course there um, and watch for other opportunities. we got a couple other uh, conferences in the works where we're going to be teaching that course as well. So, um, but the, the biggest one is that. And then, you know, DEF CON, I'll be there. Um, I'm trying to think if there's really anything else. Uh, AppSec Day in Melbourne, that's in Australia. Obviously, Melbourne, that's, you know, in October. Uh, we'll be doing the code review course down there. But there's going to be a couple other uh, places in the States that we do it. Um, but, uh, like, we, we can just kind of drop that for, for this week now. Um and Stefan, you know, we can get into it. <clears throat> uh, how are things going, man? Uh, I appreciate you coming on once again to help me out. I'm always, it's always fun to come on here and chat, you know, security nothingness with you. <laughs> security nothingness. <laughs> Wait, what are you saying about our security? Like our security, security and nothingness. And security and <laughs> <laughs> it's like Sartre writ large, but for security. <laughs> for, but for security. Yes, it, yes, it is. Right. You know. <laughs> No, I mean, I think you and I wanted to chat the Huawei thing that I was quoted in uh, by Lorenzo for Vice. Yeah. And then we wanted to chat like programming languages or whatever else came up. Probably we'll get like totally distracted by the, the lack of Android security entirely. But <laughs> <laughs> yes, and I know like we both have experiences with that. And like, uh, you know, definitely let's let's start with Huawei uh, for those listeners that may or may not know. I, I, I'm pretty sure everyone does at this point. Uh, Huawei's under sanctions from the U.S. government uh, because they apparently steal a lot of intellectual property from all of our technology companies, and because of this, uh, Google it, it, it's it's in flux right now. But Google did suspend their license for Android, uh, which means that Huawei shouldn't be able to access the Android services, like any of the Google services, um, using. You know, you know, from their from any of their Android devices, whether that's phones or tablets or anything that uh, wouldn't support them with security updates or anything else uh, moving forward on those devices. So there's there's millions of Android phones out there that are you know Huawei branded or that are built by Huawei. So of course everyone's losing their collective you know shit over it because it's a it's a pretty huge kind of security risk when it comes down to it. Um, so, uh, you know, first of all, let, let's talk a little bit about the article, like, uh, on vice, like what was their take on it? What was your, what was your quote? I mean, I can bring up the quote here. I've got it somewhere, <laughs> but I'll, I'll find the, I'll find the link and we'll post it. No. So Lorenzo asked in chat, if anyone had, uh, any like strong opinions or feelings on Android. And uh, I mean, I'm apparently known for having strong opinions about things. And so, <laughs> really, I, I didn't. I didn't know this about you. <laughs> I know it's such a it's such a strange thing to me personally. But um, Lorenzo and I were were just chatting about it, and it's like, look, I I understand what what people are concerned about. Um, I think AOSP trails Android proper. Uh, Google has agreements where you basically pay for access to certain patches and things like that. So I, I get it. There's definitely security risk, but. In, in terms of Huawei itself, like in China, App Store is not the, the major app supplier atop Android. I think it's like in fifth position in China yeah. itself. So Huawei's home base is not truly impacted by this. And then outside of, of China, it's, it's mostly Europe that uses Huawei. They, they have the largest uh, penetration for uh, lower end devices in Europe itself. So, I mean, 
is there a security risk of it? Like there's there's a security risk, but it's it's the same security risk as, as Samsung, which is what I was quoted about. Um, that Samsung does a bunch of dumb shit to their their Android install base, and um, you know they have to backport patches and stuff like that. And there's there's no real difference here for Huawei either. They'll be tracking AOSP, which is the Android open source project project or platform. I think project. Um, yeah. They'll be they'll be backtracking things on AOSP and they'll have to like keep up to date with AOSP. But in terms of the actual security for people, mm, I think the risk is really honestly negligible. Yeah, yeah. I, I, like I go back and forth on it, right? Like Huawei is a huge, huge company, right? Like I, you know, in one of my past lives, I actually you know visited their campus in Shenzhen, uh, like and kind of saw the whole operation. Um, they got a lot of smart engineers and smart people that are over there doing things. Uh, you know, like I could go into, you know, like kind of some of their basic development practices and what I was and wasn't impressed with. Um, but it's like any big company, uh, you know, like they could probably turn around and build their own version of Android if they had to, or they could replicate security events. I, I mean, heck, I, I know that they have ties with, and they like, they do a lot of security research there in China that they're actually pulling mm-hmm. for mobile devices. And so it wouldn't surprise me if they actually, if it would spur their security, you know, in a different direction or make them more secure than it is the base level Android version, right? Uh, like it, it would almost fork. And then you brought up another good point about Fuchsia, right? Uh, yeah, they're, they're already testing out Fuchsia. Um, so for anyone who doesn't know, Google has a second. So there's basically three operating systems in Google right now. Um, you have Android, which everyone is familiar with, and Chrome OS, which everyone is familiar with. But they're experimenting with another operating system, which is released under, an I think, an MIT license, maybe ISC licensed uh, microkernel. The microkernel is bespoke. It's completely different. Um, it's based off of little kernel, LLK. Um, and it's it's just, it uses Flutter and and Dart in the core, has a, a very different operating system feel, and Google is experimenting with Fuchsia. Now, your commentary about Fuchsia aside, like some people view that as just like an engineering retainership project. Some people review it as like the, the future of operating systems. But whatever you feel about it, going forward, you know, Huawei is experimenting. They are releasing a phone on top Fuchsia already, so... Yeah, I, like I mean, I was just uh, digging through the. I, I linked the Wikipedia article on Fuchsia, um, and that that's always it as well, right? Is they've got all the, um, like I mean, you've got your engineering project, your internal, your skunk work stuff that's going on, but that that feels very much like Android did, you know, ten years ago before they released it, right? They had all of these like development phones everybody was excited about it the first couple that came out were complete crap and then mm-hmm. you know they figured out how to work with it right and you know the the advantages to drop dropping something like the linux kernel and like there's there's just so much that's going into it that i i fully foresee something like fusion either taking over the internals and maybe they keep the top yeah i mean i i know that huawei could figure that out right for sure right? They they have their own mobile operating systems as well. Mm -hmm. You know, like they could probably drop Android tomorrow if they had to. It was just the easiest way for them to be globally supported and to push those devices out. Um, Yeah. So like, so we've got that whole aspect of the, the Huawei, you know, fight, I guess that's going on now that, you know, seems fairly ridiculous. Um, yeah, like how much how much have you actually dealt with the company Huawei in the past? Have you looked at the routers or anything else that they do outside of the mobile devices? Uh, I Glomar response to that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so I've yeah, I have I have looked at some of their some of their other devices. I've also looked at some of their security research too. I mean, they're they're no worse than any other firm when they were starting up, right? Cisco had a whole, like, I mean, Cisco literally just last week had a default SSH key bug. Yeah. Like, in this, the year of our Lord, 2019, they are still dealing with the same like default credentials thing. So, you know, uh, is Huawei better or worse? Like they just are right. But now the, that's ignoring any claims of espionage industrial or otherwise, but 
uh, in terms of their their security practices, like they they could be better. Of course, there are certain things that they could do a lot more of, but um, I don't think it's as bad as people make it out to be. I think it's more the political system is, you know, it, they're they're just on the unfavorable side of it right now. You know. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Like I mean, it's it's unfortunate, right? You know, like knowing the the guys that I've talked to over there and I've worked with that are that are at Huawei. I mean, it's like any security engineer that you would talk to that worked at Google or some other place or developer. Um, right. Yeah. There is some backing there, you know, that can be disputed whether it's, you know, the Chinese government or whatever that's going on with, um, with the, the, the corporate structure, um, mm-hmm. the company itself is just another technology company. Um, that's how you would view it if you were not in the U.S. and we were in, not in this like weird trade fight with, with <laughs> the Chinese and with Huawei. You know, currently, I don't know. I like. I, I feel like any of the large technology companies have their skeletons. Mm-hmm. I mean, you mentioned Cisco, but there's a lot of questions about how Cisco actually got founded and the designs yeah. that they used and where they actually came up with their initial router architecture, and mm-hmm. you know, if they just full on just stole those directly from uh, what was it Stanford, right? I believe. Mm-hmm. Well, so it's like Google, Google is one of the few companies that has had a branded uh, national reconnaissance office launch, mm-hmm. you know, uh, <laughs> like, you know, if you, and if I recall correctly, part of the issue is, is that Chinese law requires that if you have three or more uh, party members in your company, you have to have party rep- rep- representation within the company itself. So, it's it's just a very different system, and I wouldn't would I be surprised if Huawei is spying? Like absolutely not. But uh, it's just you know I don't know what they themselves could necessarily do about that given the environment that they operate in. You know. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard I, I to mean, hold them to our standards for for that sort of stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it, and it's like that in any country that you go to. Uh, you know, I mean. It, Siemens or anybody that's coming out of Europe, yes, it looks a lot like a U.S. company, um, but it's like they have other, they have different regulations that they have to follow. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you know, you want to you want to build a company in a different country, you have to follow the laws that you're currently. You know, uh, that yeah, yeah, you just have to follow the laws of that yeah. country. Right? What are they going to do about it? I mean, it's it's now having said that, if they are actually spying, like clearly they should be. You know, like I, I'm okay. I understand why people are mistrustful, but I also feel like this is a little bit of a like you know geopolitical thing that's not necessarily to do with the tech per se. Yeah, I mean, I mean they've had doozies. Don't get me wrong; they've had some pretty bad vulnerabilities before. But yeah, but again, you know, so has uh, so has Cisco, so mm-hmm. has IBM, so has everybody. You know, like so as Microsoft, it's not like they're they're special in that in that case or in that case. Mm-hmm. So I. Yeah. All right. So I like, does that, you know, does that take us to more Android security? Do you want to talk more there? I mean, so yeah, I mean, we can always talk Android security, right? Like I'm never down. I'm actually just looking at the CVE details right now because I was curious about that. So there's, there's a bunch of like, they have quite a few over seven uh, vulnerabilities um, for IPS modules, for their uh, IBM C modules have a few, but so is Dell, right? Yeah. I mean, they're no different than, I was just curious, like how, how big of a doozy are they? Like, you know, I, yeah. I, I do wonder how much of this is, is jingoism mixed with the, the current political climate and how much of this is actual, uh, you know, like actual issues with Huawei itself, you know? Oh yeah. 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 It's, yeah, it's, it, it's just been, it's interesting to watch, right? Uh, like yeah, the, sure. I remember when when I was worked work with working with them, uh, like I would mention that name, and no one had any idea who Huawei was. And I'm like, it's like the second largest, like, you know, mm-hmm. technology company that exists. It's just that the U.S. has always uh, like had their had it out for them, so we don't hear anything about them. And I'm like, there's they have phones that are as good or if not better than the Android phone that you've got in your pocket. And just because you don't know who they are, doesn't mean they're, they're not a force to be reckoned with. And right. I think that's what's happening is their technology is, is getting pushed. I, like, I mean, we talk about the cell stuff cause that's, that's probably the biggest 
know, issue that, uh, or that's the sticking point that the government has is because, hey, Huawei builds the, the routers for uh, cell networks, and especially the next generation ones. Like if you talk, start talking 5G, they're the ones that are available and ready to go right now mm-hmm. and are being deployed across the world. And the U.S. government doesn't t- trust the company because, uh, you know, it, it's built in China. That's basically what it boils down to. Which is understandable, right? Like, you know, it's why we have U.S. sourcing for, for products when you work in government. But, um, you know, how much of that is just it is just precaution based on a national security threat profile versus a like consumer profile threat um, is, is a different discussion, you know, and Android security is terrible anyway. So, (laughs) yeah. Well, so, so that's just it. Like, uh, you know, we always talk about threat models, right? We're doing application threat models or we're looking at a system and we're doing a threat model. And I like, I always hit that. Hey, most, like my threat model does not in- include nation state actors, right? Mm-hmm. Like uh, if I worry about that, uh, like I'm going to put on a tinfoil hat and go live in a cabin somewhere because I like th- th- there's just not any getting around it. And that, that doesn't include just other nation states. That includes like the state that you live in, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so like I, I I feel like we're kind of like we overblow the fact that, hey, guess what? Somebody could jump on that cell network and they could do X, Y, and Z. And if they build a backdoor into it, they could decrypt the traffic. And I'm like, yes, but your application is also using public-private, you know, key cryptography. And if, you know, if the government's going to target you, they're going to find a way is really what it boils down to. Well, does 5G still use A5, the A5 cipher? I'd have to look that up. I would have to look it up. I don't know off the top of my head. I mean, because for like, I know there there are problems with A two and A five, and like, I'm I'm not a cryptographer. I I know like FIPS one forty and and that sort of stuff, but uh, like, there are serious concerns with the with the cryptographic strength of A two and A five, which are the the streaming ciphers that are used for for cellular network connections. So, like, uh, you know, did they build anything worse than what what we thought was okay before? I mean, like, do they export the keys or the keys held in escrow? Like. That could that could happen with a cell tower anyway. Like it could be an Italian one. What like you wouldn't know, you know? Yeah, I, yeah. I, I mean, as long as the sheer communications going through, are you really like that that worried about it? I mean, and I feel like we've got other technologies that are built on top of that network topology that give us a greater assurance that security happens. I mean, you look at Whisper systems, you look at the signal and, you know, some of the other apps that run on top of there. If you're really worried about your communications, that's probably the path that you should be going uh, rather than just trusting that the AT&T or whoever has got your back, right? Well, yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, AT&T, all of those, they're, they're beholden to the baseband processor that they're using anyway which has pretty yeah. direct access to memory. I mean, they're moving away from that now, but uh, you know, for a long time it had direct DMA access to memory. Like, you know, it, it was problematic and any flaw in baseband would mean a, a basically a complete access to your phone itself. You know, uh-huh. phones are actually split. There's two operating systems, the one that you interact with and then the baseband operating system, which, which has all of the like cellular network connect- connectivity and everything. So, uh, you know, it's just, I, I, I think this is, China's really hot in the news right now. Everything sounds scary about China. We're, we're having these, like, you know, these tariff wars. And then Huawei is a good, like, face for this sort of, like, for exposing the problem. And it's a real problem. It's exposing a problem, but it's, it's also Huawei is, you know, unfortunately the target thereof. Yeah, yeah. I, I like, and I don't know how much of... I, you, you talk about IP theft and, and like um, like product creation, and I know you know from my experience. I, my, my son does Chinese immersion, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know if you knew that. He's been you know for a couple of you know for the past like ten years, he's been like half his day is all Chinese, and, and you know so we like we I took him with us when we did that trip. Uh, you know when I went to the Huawei headquarters, and like. We, there, the, the culture over there is different as well, right? Like mm-hmm. the, the whole idea of 
intellectual property is just not something that they they necessarily respect right it's about being like uh, people are held up for being more clever right? right so hey if if someone invents something but they're not clever enough to figure out how to process that correctly or how to do it so they can make a lot of money they laud the person that can figure that out and can actually grow the company and you know and make all of the money, right? Like it's, you know, there's just kind of a different cultural perspective to how things are created and who owns what, right? There's not the, like, there's not the whole protectionism that we give to ideas and the products over here to, you know, hey, if you're first there, uh, you get, you get the copyright, which means you're the only person that can produce that product for the first however many years. Um, And, yeah. So, so it, it's like, I think that plays a lot into what we see and what we fear from them mm-hmm. is they do a good job of copying processes. They do a good job of engineering. They've, you know, they've trained their people and like, it's a different way of viewing the world, I guess is what I was trying to get at. Well, I mean, industrial espionage is much more common in Europe, right? Like uh, France and France, Israel, etc. cetera, are, are, and Israel's obviously in the Middle East, but I'm lumping it in there. They're they're generally much more active in industrial espionage than than we are in the U.S. Um, wow. You know, and and uh, it's different different cultural perspective. I think we should protect against it, and I think we should review it. But um, you know, like, is it any worse than anything else? And not really. I mean, how much do you trust anything from from France or Italy? Right? Yeah, <laughs> they have active security apparatuses. Like, yep. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it does. Uh, like it's, it, it always goes back to what's your, what's your internal threat model, right? Like what is right. your risk tolerance? You know, Hey, are you willing to save a couple of bucks? If uh, you know, you get something that's, you know, uh, it, it does the job, but maybe it's not the most secure. Maybe it's not the highest quality. Hey, that's, you know, that, that's your, your decision to make. Yeah. Anyway. Well, people don't want, yeah, you don't want to pay for it. Like they want the benefits of, of using Chinese manufacturing costs, but not the not the risks that come with it. Like, mm. yeah, <laughs> you know, it's the same thing with Android, right? Like it's not, you know, yes, you can get a very cheap Android device, but they're not keeping up with the latest specs or anything like that. Like, you oh, know, yeah. good luck updating well, an Android device, you know, some random. Oh, app. man. Yeah. Especially like. Like, okay, so let's talk about that a little bit, right? Like and Android yep. and just in general, kind of the splintering of Android. Uh, you know, I, I mean, that that's one of the things that we always kind of look at is from an you know, iOS perspective. Apple comes out with a new release and every phone that supports it pretty much gets the update and it's rolled out within, you know, like a couple of weeks. You're, you're talking the majority of the phones have that new iOS version. Android is just such a mixed bag when it comes to that. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I mean, it, it's mainly because of those, like the little phones that you're talking about, right? Like the little feature phones or whatever that are sold for, yep. you know, 20, 30 bucks. Um, guess what? They're never going to get the latest and greatest version of Android. Well, it's like you can, you can go down to the drugstore right now and buy one of those like, you know, $50 tablets or netbooks or whatever, and it'll have Android on it. And it might even have a side-loaded app store. <laughs> yeah. But good luck updating that to anything, you know, anything past Android 6. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because it, it, it just, they won't support it or, like, the company's gone out of business, whatever it is. Yeah. I mean, Android, it's, Android itself is just, like, I think the split is that Android focuses on software security and iOS focuses on hardware security. And, and really using, like, like even even the enclave, right? Like key store, keychain in, in iOS. Like yep. how long did we have all of these janky solutions to fix things on Android that should have just been like, you know, store this in the keychain and never think about this again? Yeah. Right? Well, I mean, I, I, like, and I, like I go back to some of the, the recent um, assessments that I've done on Android, right? Comparing iOS to Android. And it's still, it's still an issue. Like the, the way that they want to use that key store is, oh, well, we're just going to, you know, you, you generate a key and you pull that out of there and then you use it to encrypt things, right? And I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, that's not quite the same, right? Like, it, right. 
it, you're not storing my secrets in a trusted enclave or, you know, like the trusted execution or whatever they call it, right? The TEE. You, you're giving me a key to encrypt things, which is great, but it's still not quite to that same level of, hey, uh, it's always tied to the device and to my account, and I can't pull that out unless I, like, prove my user presence and all that kind of stuff. Well, the, the keys are problematic, too, because very often clients have no idea what to do with them. So I, I've had clients that just, like, write them back to the file system, you know, <laughs> right? Like, so they actually, yeah. <laughs> like, it defeats the whole purpose of having a key, but unfortunately, that's still where we're at with Android, mm -hmm. you know? And, like, I had a client just the other day that was running into problem with the advanced keychain, I mean, the advanced key store, and they were trying to do some stuff, and they were running into some problems with it, and it was just like, you know... It, it's 2019, and I still can't recommend to a client to use that without there being some sort of like you know hit performance or, or uh, usability wise, you yeah. know. Yeah, it's just, yeah. yeah. Well, and I, like I, I can't figure out why that is, right? Like, so you're saying that um, it's because Android is focused more on software security, so like at the app level, is that what you're saying, as opposed to the hardware level? Well, no, I mean they can't. They can't say, or they don't say anyway, um, you know, they, they never say, in order to put out an Android phone, you have to have a, a TEE, you have to have SGX, you have to have something like that, some HSM built into this thing. It's always like, oh, we can run Android on anything, which is like, technically you can make that secure, but actually making that secure is, is problematic. And we, we see it with all of the software issues on Android continuously, you know? Uh -huh. It's like the Pixel or the, the Nexus, like I, I have a Nexus here that I use for testing, right? Uh, an old one, so it's no longer supported either. But, um, you know, they, they have those flagship ones which are of the quality of iPhones, but those are not the ones that most people have. Like ask your, your normal friends who have Androids if any of them have even heard of the, the Google Pixel or Nexus line or anything like that. Yeah. You know? Oh yeah, yeah. I'm most likely they'll 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 respond with, well, I have like a Samsung, right? Right. That, that, that's that's what they equate with Android. Right. It really is. Yeah. And unfortunately, like Samsung has Knox now, and they've done a lot of work at making like a, a secure environment, but they they still have issues all the time. Mm -hmm. You know. I mean, uh, it's just Android does not focus on consistency. It focuses on being able to run on every single goddamn device under the sun. Kind of like Linux and NetBSD, you know? Yeah. Like, you could put Android on some stupid, like, you know, ARM-based toaster, and it would make sense, and it would work fine. Well, but, it, has to work on our, it has to work on the refrigerator, right? You know? Of course. Yeah. Well, and that's actually an execution profile for Android, right? Like, all the Samsung refrigerators yeah. are, are actually Android refrigerators, which is horrifying and mind-blowing at the same time. It's just, it's a bad, it's a bad thing. Did you, yeah. did you lose me for a second there? Oh, well. Yeah, I lost it's, you for It's a bad. Oh, well. Yeah. <laughs> no, I was just going to say, like, that That was it. Like, I, I, you know, recently we were we were looking at refrigerators and the 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 salesman was trying to sell me on the Android, like the, the Samsung yeah. Android. And I'm like, man, you have no idea what's going on with this thing, right? Like, <laughs> I do. <laughs> I know. I know what's going on here behind the scenes, and I want nothing to do with it. You know, you know what I will say, and maybe this gets us into our next topic. I will say it's interesting that Android is moving towards Kotlin yeah. for their, for their uh, you know, programming. There's some interesting tooling and some interesting work being done in, in the Kotlin space itself. Okay. So. Yeah, and may, yeah, maybe we can move to that, right? Uh, I mean, that that happened, you know, within the last what couple of years, right? Mm -hmm. that, that, that Kotlin really took over. So, I, I mean, first of all, let, let, let's uh, yeah, let's let's roll back a little bit and like actually talk about about what Kotlin is versus you know what's currently been used, um, right? In the past, Android was always Java based, which was a huge complaint, right? Like. The, mm -hmm. Uh, you know, you want to know why those first Android phones ran so slow? It's because they were running Java. You know, it's, right, it, it's, uh, you know, write once, run anywhere is the whole, you know, mantra behind Java. The, the fact that it's not compiled, so you can take that language or you can take that uh, 
pseudo compiled object and actually run it on any any place that a Java engine exists. Right. So that that was the idea behind Java. So what is Kotlin in in relationship to that? Kotlin is a stripped down language similar to Scala, which I know is a four letter word for you, Seth. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it has a it has a syntax reminiscent of of issues or ideas from from Scala, things from more traditional like Pascal dialects, um, things like C sharp. Like it has a never null operator similar to C sharp. Okay. Um, so you can, and then it also has nullable types, those sorts of things. So it's. It's an interesting direction. I think um, it's by JetBrains, uh, the IDE maker, believe it or not, which is weird. You wouldn't have expected them to come out with a programming language that was so successful across other things. But like it, it, it's been an interesting move, and it's been an interesting shift to see things. Are people trolling in in chat? <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. You know, <laughs> uh, should I pull up chat on my phone to see what's going on? <laughs> no, you're okay. You're okay. <laughs> But I mean, like honestly, the 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 things that are going on, or the you know the the direction that they're moving with Kotlin is an interesting one, right? Kotlin has native support, so it can compile to actual like x86 binaries. It can compile to JVM. It can compile to to JS things like that. So it's an interesting language with interesting semantics. So. Cool. And have you been seeing like so in your uh you know, your professional career is you're looking at different, you know, devices and things like that, you know, from an Android perspective, are you seeing developers move to Kotlin? I know that's the direction that Java wants, or not Java, that Google wants to push. A, mm -hmm. But have you been seeing more and more Kotlin come up, come around? Well, so it's interesting. I've seen Kotlin on the server side too. Okay. I've, I've seen folks using Kotlin um, instead of Java itself on the server side for things. And they're using like NIO or, or whatever directly from Kotlin and, and not touching any Java whatsoever. And then their Android app is also written in Kotlin. Um, you know, it's similar to IBM moving a lot of their stuff to Swift, which also has a similar syntax to Kotlin. So uh -huh. not all of it, obviously, but, you know, large portions of it are not totally unfamiliar. And so as these companies move towards newer languages and move towards newer platforms, like, you know, I, I am seeing customers shift. Now, obviously where I work predicates that a lot more customers come to us with weirder languages, of course, or newer things. But, um, you know, there, there is quite a bit of Kotlin out there for folks to see. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems to be fairly uh, stable mm -hmm. from that, you know, from that perspective, I, I don't, I don't think Android would be pushing developers that direction if it, if it wasn't. Um, well, I mean, JetBrains uses it quite heavily themselves, right? Like they, they were dog fooding Kotlin before they, they released it to everyone for a lot of things. So it's, it's, it's by a company that at least has quite a bit of Java experience and understands how to, how to tune things for the JVM, right? Uh -huh. Very heavy shot. So did you lose me? Yeah, oh, no. yeah, you just paused for a second. So, I mean, they were heavy Java shop. That's what you're saying. Yeah, they're, I mean they're they're in and out, um, you know they're they're doing quite a bit of things. But I, like, I, I do think that this push towards um, you know better languages and better tooling will will help a lot, a, a lot more than um, you know another static analyzer or another another like uh, you know other tooling integration like that, you know. Yeah, yeah, it'll be I, I, like it'll be interesting to actually see how that happens. So. I mean, because we we've seen that shift in the mobile space, right? It seems that that's where it started. Is that you know Apple decided they didn't want to use iOS or they didn't want to use Objective C anymore. Mm -hmm. um, so they you know they came out with Swift, and they've been pushing that pretty heavily. Uh, and then Android on the other on the flip side said, "All right, well we'll 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 see you, and we'll switch we'll switch to Kotlin as well." Right. Um, like, are there other industries that you're seeing that are, you know, making similar changes, mm -hmm. um, it, you know, from, hey, we've got these old languages that have been out there forever, right? Like, you know, when I get into the enterprise, I still see a lot of .NET and Java and, you know, we do run into C and C++ here and there. Um, but it's all those kind of traditional languages. Uh, you, you know, there are, there is, 
some newer, you know, Node.js and other things like that. But realistically, I run into the enterprises and I don't see a lot of Go or even Python or anything like that. It's all of the old .NET and Java. That's that's what they still depend on. So mm -hmm. where are you where are you seeing programming languages go in that in that case? Are we are we moving to, you know. Node and JavaScript, or, or are there other places? Yeah, you hope not. I think we all we could all agree with that. We don't want to move that direction, but it, it is still out there. So. I mean, I, we see a lot of TypeScript come in, even atop Node, which I'm much happier about, right? Like you, you have types; people actually understand what they're using, what they're sending around to one another. TypeScript uh -huh. is a, is a much better programming language for that space than than JavaScript itself. Um, we're seeing some F Sharp come in. Okay. In shops, um, you know, Microsoft is using it heavily for modeling and whatnot. Um, it's replacing OCaml and and Cock for a lot of modeling. Cock is COQ for all of the perverts listening and trying to troll me. Um, <laughs> it's you know, it's a it's a modeling language that is used for extracting programs from specifications. Um, so we're we're seeing you know F Sharp and F Star take over those sorts of things. There's Stainless for Scala, um, which is used a lot. So I, I primarily work in infrastructure, in blockchain, and then in, in like mobile IoT sorts of things. I work I don't work really on the web. I work much more in the infrastructure uh, side of code, and and we are seeing quite a bit of Go. We're and we're seeing things proven out in Rust. Um, so yeah. Rust plus proofs and things like that. Um, we're seeing a lot of movement towards that. Okay. So. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's definitely a different use case, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the, the space that you're playing in, uh, speed and being able to compile things, like I, like I totally understand why Go is taking off, you know, from a, you know, uh, like it seems like the old C programmers and C++ programmers have pushed more that direction um, as opposed to, you know, pushing into a, you know, an interpreted language like a Python or a Perl or, you know, any of the others because they do want that, like... It, yeah, like you're running infrastructure. It comes down to how fast can I move X, you know, this packet from point A to point B. Mm -hmm. If it takes me 200, 200 milliseconds longer, I can't sell my product, right? That's Well, I mean, we're also having languages that um, can compete with C or C++ at least, but have much nicer semantics. Like no matter what you say about Go, um, it, it does have things like maps and expandable lists and things like that built in that are relatively performant. Yeah. Right. Like it, it's doing a lot of the heavy lifting that if you wanted to get the speed out of C++, you'd have to like futz with an allocator and futz with all like smart pointers and all this sort of stuff. Whereas with Go, for the average developer, it's going to get you much closer to what you would want to be performance wise. So like, you know, is it my favorite? No. But, you know, I mean, I, I would prefer that we don't even have Turing complete languages for most of these things, like in expressivity. Like we, I think most developers don't even need to have Turing completeness. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So let, let, <laughs> let, let, let's go there then, right? Like, okay, you know, for those listeners that aren't like, that didn't do CS in college, right? Let, let, <laughs> let, let's talk about what being Turing complete means. Well, so... It, without getting too theoretical and without talking about like, uh, you know, uh, all of the different like mathematical models and things like that, Turing completeness is, is basically can you uh, execute an arbitrary program on a Turing machine, right? Okay. Um, you know, and there's, there's all different like universal Turing machines and things like this. And, and there's, there's various different um, steps up and down, right? Um, but effectively, general purpose programming languages are... Turing complete. And because of that, you can't prove that they terminate. You have some computability theorems like, like Godel's uh, completeness theorem, second completeness theorem, and Rice's computability theorem, which basically limit what you can do to prove out if those, those programs can, can terminate. So the, the interesting thing is that, I, and I've joked about this online, but like solidity for EVM, for, for Ethereum, you you can say how much money you're willing to burn on a calculation. So when you want to simulate your program, you can simulate it as if it had an, that much time to complete. And okay. if it doesn't complete that, you know that it terminates because you stop burning, you literally stop burning money on this program. 
So it, it's a weird, it's, it sounds weird, but you can actually do more things with Solidity in terms of testing because you can prove that it completes and you can prove that there's, there's certain aspects of the program will never be hit because of mm -hmm. how, like, the semantics of it. So... Yeah, like, and I know we've had this discussion on Turing completeness before, right? As as far as, um, like, uh, okay, so from a theoretical perspective, all of the you know all of the computer science that are out, scientists that are out there, and everybody that's designing language, that seems to be their like gold standard, right? This right. is this is what I'm 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 building my language towards, even though, for, so if I understand what you're saying, it doesn't really matter to most people or most developers, right? Well, so so think about it this way, right? Most, I, I suspect, I have a theory that most developers, if you took away the ability to do complete, like to, to be a Turing machine, they would A, not know what the fuck you're talking about, and B, uh, would probably benefit from the fact that the compiler can give them much more accurate representations of what they thought they were doing. Yeah. So you have languages like F star, right? F star has, has integers, but then it also has total integers. And you can prove tota totality is another computability subject. We don't have to get into it right now. But you, because you have that level of expression, one, one above, and you can reduce the expressivity of the language, you can prove out more of what your program is doing in a smaller amount of space than in a general purpose programming language. Okay. So I, I think most programmers would actually benefit. And there was an experiment, um, Alex Infosec, um, I, can, I can send you the link. But basically, he wrote a programming language called Crema, and this was an experiment to make a sub-Turing complete programming language for normal people. So no like ML stuff, no crazy like type system, anything like this. It just looks like a JavaScript or a, you know, or Java or something like that, you know? And it was an it was an experiment to see what what do we actually get when we when we give people a sub Turing programming language, and it was extremely interesting. Yeah. So, yeah. That's, yeah. Let's pull that link up. I'd like to. Do you have it or? Um, I'm trying. Uh, that's what I'm trying to figure out. You said it's Alex Infosec. It's uh, a info. So GitHub.com a Infosec. I'll just paste it into chat into our chat right here. I was just looking at the tests there. But basically, I mean, when you have these sorts of sub-Turing completeness languages, like you, you can prove out more of the language. And I, I suspect that if you came up with something friendly enough that gave people actual access to what they, they need to do, which is for most developers, it's like retrieve a bunch of crap from the database, uh, do a bunch of crap to it, and then display all that crap back to the user, right? Yeah. That's all they care about. They, they really don't give a crap if they can do like an infinite for loop. In fact, they probably would prefer if they could never get them into, in, themselves into that state. And with, with sub-Turing languages, you can prove that, hey, you actually, actually did not screw this up. You did exactly what you thought you could do. I mean, in, in the blockchain space, we see this, there's a programming language called Obsidian. Um, Obsidian was a research language that was released to replace Solidity. Now, Solidity is is not exactly a general purpose language, but given infinite gas, it is Turing complete. Okay. So what the Obsidian folks did was they realized 90% of all Solidity programs are, I receive something, I process something, I send out something else. And I need to be in this state to do this thing, and I need to be in this state to do this other thing. And that's all I want to do. And so Obsidian actually codified all of those rules and made it so that you can never get your, you can prove that I'm never accidentally in a state like over here that was not what I wanted to be doing. Yeah. And they did that by making it sub-Turing. And it's, you know, there, there are people experimenting with it right now, but I think in general purpose stuff, that's the general direction. Like what mobile application needs to actually be fully computable? Games maybe, right? Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe, but, yeah. Maybe. Yeah, we're not even sure. Because ga games, you could be complete over the, the subset of the screen, let's say. Yeah. You know? But everywhere, you, yeah. You just have a bunch of actors, and I mean that in the computability theory sense, 
where you have an actor that accepts a message and then processes it and sends it back, like you, you don't need to be Turing complete. And I suspect most developers would be better off for having themselves handcuffed to the bed. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, like, 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 we, like we always talk about that, right? Like a lot of the security problems that we see that exist, um, I, I mean, you go back to the C days, right? And like, it's all because we're, we're giving them too much power to do things that they don't understand, right? It's like they, they're trying to accomplish a task, like you're saying, and mm -hmm. we're saying, hey, but you have to you have to remember like where your memory pointers go, and you know your buffer. You need to allocate that memory, like, and you know, so and it seems that we get more secure the less flexible we make the language, mm -hmm. and the more like codified that we do things, right? Um, I mean, even on the even in the web space, I see that right. Like you, you see Rails and some of those others, you know, kind of like strongly typed frameworks. Mm -hmm. um, as far as we do this in this one way, it's very easy for me to tell when you don't do it that way, and we can actually give you some, you know, some feedback about why you shouldn't do it. Right? Well, it, it's interesting. Uh, Rails now has Sorbet, which is a gradual type checker for for Ruby. I just posted it in there. Um, Sorbet is okay. super interesting to see where they're moving with that. And it's similar to like where MyPy and PyWrite are moving. Um, Microsoft just released PyWrite, which is, is super interesting in and of itself, um, which is a, a, a basically a type checker for Python. Um, but when, you, when you're looking at these, when you're looking at the directions of things, like people do better when you give them guide rails. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, the argument always comes down with like, oh, there's there's this one guy I know that can program perfectly safe C every time he looks at it, and he knows all the undefined behavior in his program, or she knows all the the undefined behavior in their program. And you're like, maybe that one person. That person is not me, by the way. I've been programming in C for like 24 years, and that person is not me. I cannot look at a program and tell what is UB or not. I mean, I can kind of, but I also don't care. I want the compiler to fix it for me. And it's just, it's so, it's so problematic. It's, it's just, we shouldn't be at this place in, in 2019. Null was a hack that Tony Hoare added to a language in order to get around an optimization issue that he was looking at. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and we're still, and like Tony Hoare admitted that that was his like billion and or trillion dollar mistake, right? Like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 and, but you understand why because it like it end up, ends up being so useful that you know developers gravitate towards it to solve a problem that probably wasn't intended to be solved for like using that yeah you know using that object using that that concept and yet hey that's where we're at right that's that's realistically what happens yeah I mean they developers really don't understand what they're doing most of the time, right? Like they, they want to get their, they understand their business domain. That's what they understand. They don't necessarily understand the entire suite of like security attacks and things like that against an application. They don't even necessarily understand the entire framework that they're using. So give them minimal amount that you can to, to help save them, you know, yeah. save them from themselves. Yeah. 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 Well, and that, I, like, that, that concept is not, I mean, it, it's not new, right? Like, for no. sure, that's what we've been trying to do for years and years, the way that we design languages that, you know, um, how they're intended to be used. And like, even Kotlin and Swift, you know, if we go back to that initial discussion, that's, that seems to be the direction we're going. You know, when we had Manico on, that's what we talked about was, hey, like, why don't we have like this one true framework that takes care of all the security problems and just saves the developers from themselves? I, there's always going to be people that want to break out of it. You, you know, there's always people that are going to, you know, think that they're the special case. Um, and you can give people an avenue to do that without, you know, without affecting the security of like 99% of the developers that are never going to touch that, that edge case. Right. Yeah, there's a uh, there's a uh, computer languages researcher that I'm follow that I follow, Connor McBride. Uh, I'll send you the okay. link, Seth. Um, okay. Connor McBride works on uh, so he worked on ML uh, as in meta language 
um, in Scotland when it was first coming out. He's he's worked in, in type system and in type theory for uh, you know a very long time, and he had a comment this morning, and I just I thought it was super interesting. And he said, "Type inference is so last century. The right thing to do right now is to write the types down." then get as much mechanical assistance generating the entirety of the programs as possible. So no longer like basically moving towards types of specifications and then just letting something else mechanize the rest of it for you. Why do we care about like, per, like what literally, why do we care about writing programs? It's stupid. It's dumb. Yeah. It's fucking dumb. <laughs> no, I'm serious. It's like, it's really, I, I just linked it to you. But we, we write these things and it's like, it's cool, but we write the same stuff over and over again when really we should be using like TLA plus, we should be using Idris or something to write down what we think the shape of the program is and then have something else like magic that up. And that's what Haskell is moving towards everything. So yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, it, it's almost, you know, moving towards more of a markup rather than, you know, what, what do we care underneath the hood, what it's actually doing, right? I think I, most I, I get that, right? Yeah. Well, well, no, no, no. Because I, I mean, the purpose of like the programs that we build is realistically like input output, how it accomplishes that. Um, as long as it's within like the time frame of what we want, why do we care, right? Well, I mean, outside of the fact that we couldn't be hipsters and we couldn't claim that we, you know, write Go, you know that. But yeah, do we really want to write Go? Like. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really, really, I, I think the vast majority of programming is is dumb. It's mostly like janitorial, like like or uh, like moving things around and processing. And it would be better mechanized for us. It'd be more secure and better. And this is my controversial opinion, I guess, here. But it's fucking stupid. Most programming is dumb. <laughs> No, right? I mean, okay. Yeah, no, no. I, like, I, no, I get it, right? Like, that's, I, I would agree. Like, you know, I, I have a tendency to agree, right? You know, that we don't, like, there's nothing, I, there's nothing new, new that we're really trying to accomplish. You know, it's just, you know, hey, we're, you know, it's a new platform. It's a, whatever it is, right? Like, mm -hmm. but, I don't know. I like, and this always goes back to, to the thought that, you know, we, we have this fight about, you know, uh, like, or whatever that happened at Locomocosec that they were talking about, Hey, everybody that's in product security needs to know how to program. Like, yeah, yeah. Right. Like, you know, it's going to help your career if you can read languages, right. You know, you're, you're right. But guess what, what constitutes a program? Right? Like yeah. what, what is it? Right? Any, anything that takes something, processes it and spits it back out. So you, you can't look got, look down on the guy that actually understands shell scripting. Right. Cause that's a programming language, right? Well, or any, any user input can be modeled as a language, right? Yeah. Any. Yeah. Like ETL stuff. It's mm -hmm. all. Yeah. Yeah. Any, anything that a user can yeah provide. Right. Well, that's that's Langsec, right? Is the is the thought that you you need to move towards a linguistic theory of of security rather than uh, rather than an actual like um, you know like instead of instead of treating user input as uh, you know oh I'm getting some JSON object or things like this these are these are a series of domain specific languages that your your program processes right I, I just linked you to the Langsec proceedings because that's that's easiest yeah yeah. And that, yeah, that's what I popped up there too, right? You know, is the well, a lot of the security vulnerabilities and security issues that we have are is is a breakdown of that understanding, right? Mm -hmm. um, but, but yeah, what? Well, no, I was going to say, I, like, it's funny when infosec people get all hung up on like everyone needs to be able to program because infosec code, in my experience, infosec code has been some of the shittiest, most vulnerable, horrible code that I have ever seen in my life. I mean, you and I have talked about this before as well. Like you and I used to be janitors fixing other people's code. That's what you and I would commiserate about all the time. Yep. And it was, it was hugely problematic, you know? And it's funny yep. because InfoSec yeah. is suddenly like everyone should program. And it's like, they never said program well. <laughs> 
No, I, well, okay. And, and to be fair, right? Like I think James Wicket and, you know, Ken, those guys, they're, they're talking about, I know. Uh, <laughs> hey, being able to, yeah, yeah. Just being able to understand what's going on, but no, you're, you're absolutely right. You know, we, we, we look at code that's coming out of the security industry and it's like, Oh my word. Right. Like oh, yeah. these guys, like they would be junior, junior programmers somewhere and they wouldn't be allowed to touch production. Mm-hmm. And in fact, they may not get a job. Right. No, but you know, <laughs> they, 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 they understand these one, you know, these small pieces really well. So great. You're specialized. Right. But yeah, you're, yeah, it's. Yeah. yeah. I'd rather <laughs> kick that up, up a level and not even not even have most folks thinking about that sort of thing. I'd rather have business analysts. And I know this gets back to like the 80s when all of us were experimenting with things like Clipper and like specification languages and that like we're going to have this one day where there's no programmers whatsoever, but we're we're, we're actually able to do that sort of program synthesis now relatively performant wise. It's not like yeah. IBM Rational Rose anymore where you give it something and it generates like 10 million lines of code. No, no. I, I, I mean, uh, yeah. A lot of what business analysts are trying to do anyway, right, is, you know, I think that's partly why data analytics has become such a huge hot topic is they don't, they, they no longer need a computer scientist to go in and actually, you know, build them something. They can go into what elastic search and they can pull the data out mm-hmm. and manipulate it in some way. They can use R and you know, there's other there's other mechanisms for them to ma- manipulate data to actually understand to get at the heart of the problem that they want, as opposed to okay, I have to define a set of requirements, I have to codify all of this, and when I you know need to make changes or I need to run some other analysis, then all of a sudden I have to go through another like development cycle, and it becomes a huge like business problem. So yeah, like I mean, I get it, right? Like like I I, th- I feel like we 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 have a tendency or we're, we're starting to abstract ourselves away from that, right? Like over time, that's what's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet there's still, uh, there's all, there's all this security debt that's out there. Right. Oh, for sure. But, that I, that I don't think we're getting away from. Right. And, and I, I know we're creating new security debt as well because we, we have these new languages. Everybody hops on the Ruby bandwagon or the, you know, the go bandwagon and, you know, maybe, you know, 90% of them don't really know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we, we end up with the same sorts of issues that we had. Uh, well, we end up with security issues that are specific to that language. Right. Right. Or implementation of the framework, right? Like, you know, how many issues have been there with Gorilla and CSRF or whatever and Go? You know, it's yeah. like every single time we hop on, it's cool. We have a new language, it expresses new things, but we also have the same security bullshit all over again. And for, for what reason? Like, I, I do think moving away from most people programming would be fine. I'm fine yeah. with that. Well, there, there, there it is. You know, you just need to set up security as a microservice. and you know. <laughs> Let's not get too far. I'm thinking TLA plus or COC or AGDA or something like that. I'm not thinking about like, you know, uh, setting up anything, anything microservice or anything like that. That That's a little oh, Come on. <laughs> I'm controversial. I'm not a jerk. <laughs> but I mean, like, no, I love Ken. You know that I love Ken. I think he has a very good point with the, with the current ecosystem about learning to code. But, you know, where we can move to, what we should be doing next, like, you know, I, I think we can we can move away from these sorts of things, you know, uh, from requiring code and moving towards synthesis and understanding things, not just at a framework level, but at like a specification level. Yeah. Yeah. Remember I mean, the, the more, what? Remember cucumbers, like the BDD framework? Cukes? Yeah, I do. Like, remember, that would be much better to code, like, like that sort of specification would be much better than uh, like coding up all of the problematic things that people thought that the, the cuke meant, you know? Yeah. No, it, it, yeah, it definitely would. Right. Cause it's easier to understand. I mean, you're getting back to that link sec. It's easier for people to understand. Uh, they're getting out what they expect without, without having to, you know, build the whole you know, code base behind the scenes. So I, like it, I just don't know. I don't know how we get from where we're currently at to that ideal, 
right? And that, that was my big question to Manico as well is like, great, you know, you, you think that XSS is going to be solved, right? Mm -hmm. And then you turn around at LocoMocosec and you see, you know, Google paid out 75% of their bug bounties to, you know, for XSS, that's it, right? Mm -hmm. And like, Google's a huge engineering org. If anybody, you know, is going to solve that problem and be able to figure out how to protect against it, it probably should be them. But, right. So obviously they haven't pushed that framework down. So like, how, how do we get there when we have all these disparate, you know, languages, we have all these disparate frameworks. Um, everybody thinks they're the shiny and they're the, they're the exception. So they're going to go and they're going to break that framework in some way, or they're not going to, you know, yeah. So how do we get there? Well, it's like Microsoft. So you mentioned Google paid out majority of XSS vulnerabilities, but Microsoft paid like theirs was something like 70% memory corruption, like off by one vulnerabilities. Like most of their stuff is still legacy C and C++. Like, oops, I accidentally overran a buffer. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like it, it's just... You know, the fact that developers can still do for loops and accidentally overrun a buffer because they, they have no linguistic support for doing otherwise is, you know, like the compi like compilers in F star will tell you, oh, hey, you're actually off by one before you even run the thing. So, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, it's, I mean, at that point, it's a developer education perspective, right? Like. Hey, you know, maybe we, we shouldn't be teaching .NET and Java in school, right? We should be teaching F star. We should be teaching these higher level languages because that's going to be what the kids are going to, or like that's what the new employees are going to come in and want to program. It's it's going to take a generation to actually get past that. But like what like what you're saying with Microsoft, you know, we're we're a generation removed from coding real C C and yet that's still the problem that they're dealing with. Like, do, do we ever really get away from that? Well, there's the long tail of it, right? Like C yeah. and C++ will be haunting us when you and I are both dead and in the ground. And, you know, it's been years and that's years, true. you know, because it's just there's, there's so much infrastructure that's, that's still written on it and will always be written on that. And people don't want to pay the money to model things. They don't want to understand what they're actually doing, right? They just want to hack shit together and be done with it. And... And there, there's something to be said for, for that, but there's also the, something to be said for like, maybe if we sat down and thought about this for like two hours, we'd come up with a much better solution than, you know, than just hacking it together and throwing it together, yeah. which is what coding does, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not controversial at all. <laughs> no, no, you're, you're not. You're, you, yeah. Yeah, I, I, like you know, it, like I, I want to feel like we get like it gets better over time, and we introduce the concepts, and we you know train the developers, and mm -hmm. you know, uh, like uh, we we have seen some of that long tail stuff going on with you know specifically like injection vulnerabilities and stuff like mm -hmm. that. Like we understand how that works, so we kind of took away the option, and everybody uses parameterized queries, and you're using all these frameworks that that's the only way to to talk to the ORM, and that you know we give them the option of using something that's insecure, but it's like outside the box and, you know, Hey, like that's not the standard way. Um, and so like, I, I mean, I think of my early career like SQL injection and, you know, ASP days and early PHP days. And it was every single application, like every single parameter that you would hit nowadays, if I find it, it's one parameter, uh, somebody's doing something strange. It's in a weird place in the application. It's somebody else's code. Right. And so it's like, it's definitely this like long tail of, yes, it still exists, but it's kind of a, it's, it's an edge case now. It doesn't need to be number one in the OWASP top 10 because the, the risk has been reduced. So we are getting there. I, you know, I, I think you're right. We're getting there, but it's just, it never seems to be quite fast enough. And, you know, as we're moving to these new languages and we're recreating the wheel every six months or two years or whatever it is. Yeah. I mean, we, we know how to fix it. It's just, again, as usual, we don't want to pay the money to actually do yeah. so, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah, because it's going to take, I mean, those the enterprises, from their perspective, if they want to get rid of all that old code, they're basically throwing away their business and starting from scratch. Absolutely. Right? 
and it's hard, right? You'd have to, I mean, you can have, you can have specializers and you can have things that generate for the same platform that you're already on, but you know, that's still a time investment. You have to make sure that's correct. There's, there's proofs that you have to handle there and it's a lot, it's a lot of code, but yeah. it would be a better and safer future for everyone. Right. Sure. Okay. So just burn it all down. We'll start from scratch. That's what, that's what you're saying. Pretty that's much. the nice view today. I'm, I'm Zarathustra coming down from the mountains with uh, some embers and threatening to burn down the valley or something, you know? <laughs> yes. Yeah, we'll just, yes. Okay, good, good. You know, at least I've got my quote for the episode. That's all that we needed we go from there. <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, uh, like, I, I think moving away from it or testing moving away from from pure Turing completeness to more restricted languages, more restricted frameworks, I think it would be perfect for, for the future. Yeah. There's yeah. your quote. <laughs> okay, sweet. Got it. <laughs> I'll tag it. We'll, we'll be good to go. Tag it and tag it. Tag it, tag it. Sweet, man. Uh, well, like we've been going for over an hour, so um, <laughs> as usual, like it goes by quick. Um, but this has been really interesting. Like, you know, I, I'd agree. Like the, the Huawei discussion stuff was, yeah. Yeah, it is what it is. Um, but on the pro programming language perspective, the, yeah, like I, I just don't know. Like, yeah, again, like I, I, I'm just torn because I don't see how we get there uh, quickly enough, right? Mm -hmm. To prevent, you know, half of what's going on. And there's always going to be new attacks. Um, and so even though we solve one problem, it seems like, you know, it's the Medusa, like, you know, four or five new ones pop up. Um, so, are we making progress? Yes. Is it fast enough? No, but we can't really get there without the money and without the support. I like, I, I almost feel like it's not until like government and compliance comes into it that we actually do anything. Um, That's going to be terrible though. Yeah. Like I know it is. Yeah. Like the CISA, right. The new department of Homeland yeah. security agency that that's come out. Like if they actually ever come down hard on people, it's going to be hugely problematic. Yeah, because they're going to come down yeah. with like a, a giant sledgehammer of death. They're not going to come down with like a very nuanced approach, right? True, true. <laughs> well, and uh, yeah, I, but that's the only way that stuff gets done. So, absolutely, cool. All right, All right man. Cool. Well, appreciate it. Thanks for listening. If you're there, uh, and we'll go ahead and post all this here shortly. Um, but yeah, Stefan, as always, it's fun. Uh, we'll do it again sometime. Uh, maybe I'll have, have Ken, Ken host you and he can just sit there and Google full time. So. <laughs> All right. Thanks everybody. Appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Thanks everyone.